0: Should sex leave you breathless? That's what we're going to be talking about on today's edition of the To Love, Honor, and Vacuum podcast. Sometimes it feels like marriage is just a huge to-do list. You've got chores, you've got date nights, you've even got sex. (laughs) Well, here at To Love, Honor, and Vacuum, we don't want marriage to be a to-do list. We want to turn it into a passionate adventure. This month for Valentine's Day month, both on the blog and in the podcast, I've been talking about how to make sex feel great. And we've been doing some posts that are perhaps a little bit more graphic than usual. I had one uh, last. Last week on how to find the G spot. I've got one this week on how to have multiple orgasms, and I invite you to check out to LoveHonor for some of those posts. And today I want to elaborate on that a little bit. Should we be looking for some of these things? Should sex actually be feeling great? I've got a lot to say about that. And I know for some of you orgasm feeling good has been a big problem because you've just honestly never figured out what all the fuss is about. And we're going to be getting to that in a second. But I want to back up and I want to start with a mental block that I often hear from women, especially in Christian circles. There was actually a comment left on the blog this week on an older post where a woman was saying, look, there's no marriage in heaven. So we know there's no sex in heaven. So why are you making such a big deal about sex here? We should just simply be yearning for God and forgetting about all this orgasm stuff. And this is something that's very common that I've heard. I was once speaking at a marriage conference, and a husband came up to me and said that his wife had told him after she gave birth to their last child that sex was over now because there was no need for it anymore. And he was just heartbroken and didn't know what to do about this. And so ladies, let's just talk about this right now. I know that I talk about sex all the time. And I know that that can seem like really base. Like, why don't I talk about some important things that actually bring us closer to God? But I truly believe that if you think that orgasm doesn't matter, or that sex and marriage is optional, that you're actually going to have a harder time understanding a lot of things about God. You know, that comment that that woman left, uh, she left it when I was away on our trip. My husband and I are just back after three weeks in the RV down south. and It was a wonderful time. I was still working while I was down there. Uh, But Rebecca was running the blog a lot of the times, and she actually ended up responding to this woman, and she left a really good comment. And I want to read what she wrote, because I think it's brilliant. I mean, yeah, my daughter's smart. Uh, It is kind of weird, though, to be working on a blog about sex and your 24-year-old daughter is on it with you all the time and we end up talking about this stuff. But, you know, here's what she said. She said, you know, life isn't only about what we need. You don't need to eat pizza ever, but we do. Why? Because it's good. We don't need to drink anything other than water, but we still like to drink tea or coffee or our favorite drink because, again, it tastes good. God makes it really clear in his word that life isn't just about surviving until we die. He commands us, taste and see that the Lord is good. Happier are those who take refuge in him. And again, Jesus says that he came so that we can have life and have it to the fullest, not just a bare minimum getting by with no joy kind of life. And I just want to insert here, this idea that we are holier if we are not happy, that's not of God. Because our God is a passionate, joyful God, and joy is one of the fruits of the Spirit. It's not like if you're miserable, you get brownie points, okay? we got to get rid of that idea. No, an orgasm isn't necessary for your survival, but if God has given you a gift through allowing you to marry, and you continuously decide to reject that gift by saying it's not that important, don't you think you might be missing out on something that God desires for you? I challenge you to realize that when you get married, a full, satisfying sex life is god's will for your marriage reading literally anything in song of songs shows that sex is a part of god's desire for marriage and not just sex but sex that's great for both of you Too often, we shut ourselves out of God's best for us simply because it requires too much of a sacrifice. We don't want to be vulnerable. We don't want to give up control. And as I've talked about in previous podcasts, women needing to feel control is one of the biggest hindrances we have to orgasm. And we don't want to be bothered with the time that it will take to actually reach orgasm. But living in a marriage where you never really have sex or never have good sex is like only ever eating meals that are 100% tasteless. Yes, you'll survive, but you're missing out on a key aspect of human experience. Finally, let me be clear. You are not holier for not desiring orgasm. Your husband is not less holy for desiring to have sex. In fact, if you are in a healthy marriage relationship, I suggest you consider why you are the one in the relationship that is declining a gift from God. Because when we turn away from the things that God has designed for us, it is often due to inner battles we are dealing with. It may sound holy to say, I don't need sex, but there's nothing holy about creating intimacy anorexia in your marriage. Okay, isn't my kid smart? I totally agree. And I just, I hear this from so many women that, well, sure, sex might be good, but I really don't need it and I don't want to pursue it. Ladies, God made you to have your toes curling and to be breathless and to be passionate. And as I have said many times, even though women may take longer to reach climax, when we do, our orgasms can be far more intense and they can be longer. And so we actually were created for this incredible capacity for passion and for pleasure. And that is not something which God did as an afterthought. That is not something that God created and then said to Christians, but this isn't really for you because you're supposed to be holier than that. No, this is something that is for you and it's totally okay to want it. And honestly, you know, sex can be such a gift because when you do reach pleasure like that, it makes you feel closer to your husband because of all the amazing oxytocin hormones that are going through you. It makes you sleep better just all kinds of stuff happens. And so I hear so many women say, well, you know, he might need that physically, but all I really need is the closeness. And so I don't really care about my own orgasm. Okay, ladies, you gotta sometimes care. All right, you totally do because this was created for you. Quite often, we really do see sex as primarily for men. I'm going to be talking about this more in the month of March, and I'm going to be going into it more next week. So I don't want to dwell on this too much right now. But in that series I did on love and respect, Emerson Egrich very clearly said that sex was for men's physical release, whereas women only needed emotional release, whatever emotional release means. I have no idea. It's such a strange phrase. Okay, that is simply not true. But because we tend to see sex that way, that sex is about men's physical release, we often don't look or we often don't prioritize our own orgasm. And this brings me to my second point. Okay, so we were talking about the mental block where we think women's orgasm isn't that important. But the second thing is, is just simply biologically, couples can get into this routine where his experience of sex is seen as the norm, and she simply has to catch up. And I'll explain what I mean by that if you think about the way that sex works, he needs to be aroused in order for you to even have sex. Okay, he needs to have an erection. Our arousal is not necessary in the same way. And quite often he can start intercourse before we're really even ready to go. And in a lot of marriages, that's what's happened. You know, you go to that wedding night, and everyone's told you your entire life, just wait till your wedding night, it'll be so magical, it's the best night of your entire life. And then you end up on your wedding night, you're absolutely exhausted from the day that you've just had, but you figure that you have to have sex because it's your wedding night. And it doesn't last very long. And the earth does not move for you. And you start thinking, really, like, is that all there is? But Because he can start intercourse as soon as he's aroused. Most men only need about two to three minutes of intercourse to climax. That doesn't mean they can't last longer, by the way. Men can train themselves to last longer, especially by concentrating on her pleasure. He can often last longer. But most men can reach orgasm very easily within two to three minutes from starting intercourse. And then he's done. And so we start to think that that is what sex is. He is aroused. You start intercourse. He has a climax. And however much time that takes, that's what sex is. His experience of sex then becomes held up as the norm. Okay, so this is what sex is. And therefore, if she is going to enjoy it, she somehow needs to catch up to him. And her enjoyment is seen as secondary. And what's wrong with her that she doesn't find this fun? Because this is what sex is. And we need to stop that. Okay, that is not what sex is. Is (laughs) Is <laughs> what sex is, is both of you feeling good together. And it's very important that your husband actually takes some time to make sure that you feel good. You know, one of the most common questions that I get is what happens when you're the one who's always left hanging? What happens when he totally enjoys sex and he tells you that you need to give him sex because you're not supposed to deprive him? Just sort of that, that whole philosophy that's found in that book, Love and Respect and Others. You know, he needs sex, so you need to give it to him. And we start thinking that sex means he's aroused, he has intercourse for two to three minutes, and then he's done. And that's a problem because it makes sex entirely about him. And that's not the way that God made our bodies. It really isn't. Let's think about the way that God made your body for a minute, okay? Most women need clitoral stimulation in order to reach orgasm. That's what actually makes us aroused. It's not through intercourse. Uh, And I talked about this in my G-Spot post a little bit too, in terms of how you can make intercourse feel better. But for most women, it's clitoral stimulation that you're requiring. God would not have made us that way if he was expecting sex to only be about intercourse when the guy is aroused. The fact that God made us so that we require clitoral stimulation is so that the guy will have to pay attention to us in a way that does not necessarily give him direct pleasure. I'm going to repeat that because that's really important. The fact that God made us so that we need something other than intercourse to make us feel aroused means that God specifically intended men to pay attention sexually to their wives outside of something which brings men direct pleasure. That means that part of God's plan for sex is that your husband pay attention to you. Honestly, it's actually kind of beautiful if you think about it. But because we tend to see sex as intercourse until he climaxes, we often miss out on this. And so that leaves a lot of women wondering what the big deal is. And you think, well, I don't want to insist on my orgasm because it'll take us so much more time. And it just doesn't seem right to make him have to do something extra. That's the problem, ladies. This isn't something extra it's okay for you to want to be aroused too. And so talk to him about it. I think it's perfectly okay to say something like, honey, I want our sex life to be frequent and to be amazing and passionate. But I feel like it's one sided. I feel like you're getting a lot of pleasure, but I'm not and we're missing out on something amazing God has for us. Can we try some new things? And then start talking to him about how you need more foreplay. I'll put a link in the podcast post on my blog with a great video by a woman named Amanda Gore, which explains to guys all about why women need foreplay. And it's so important for guys to get this. So take a look at that. I think playing the teacher game can help sometimes too. You know, take his hand and and show him exactly what you need. I know that sometimes it can be difficult for us to voice that directly because it's awfully awkward to talk about. But it's okay to take his hand and show him what you need. It's not okay for you to be left sexually unsatisfied all the time. However, if you are going to experience some of the amazing ways that God made you to feel orgasmic, you're going to have to be a little bit more active during foreplay. Because I think sometimes we lie there waiting for him to do stuff with us. And what's going through our mind all the time is, am I taking too long? Is he getting bored? And we got to get over that. We really do. And see your husband as someone who honestly does want to give you pleasure. You know, most guys really do. They just don't get it. And if your guy has not uh, been spending enough time on foreplay, don't assume bad motives on his part. He might honestly just not understand. Because we tend to give pleasure in the same way that we experience pleasure. So because guys feel so great with intercourse, they often think their wives should too. And then if their wives don't, they figure, well, my wife just isn't sexual, whereas that's probably not true at all. It probably is that you could feel amazing if you just learn more about how your body works. And if you just try more things beforehand, foreplay is your friend, okay? (laughs) Um, My books 31 Days to Great Sex helps you with this. Uh, in terms of challenges that you can do with your husband. um, The Good Girl's Guide to Great Sex talks about this in detail about what women need. And of course, my new product, My Sexy Dares that we released last week, have a lot of dares that he does that are focusing on more foreplay and on making you feel good. So hopefully those will help as well. Why is it that we shy away from foreplay so much? I think we just plain do feel awkward because we think there's something wrong with us. We think that we should be reacting to sex the same way that men do. But that's not the way our bodies are built. And so when we recognize this is how God made my body, and it is different from my husband's, but it is still good. In fact, it's very good. Then we can start having a different view of these things. Now, a couple of words for you you women who have never reached orgasm for a lot of women, it does take a couple of years. It really does. Um, it seemed in the surveys that I did for the Good Girl's Guide to Great Sex, the best years for sex in marriage are 16 to 24. Okay, <laughs> that's when things really start clicking. I think it's probably because the baby years are behind you. You're sleeping through the night. You feel so much more comfortable with each other. You can be a lot more vulnerable with each other because honestly, great sex does require you to be vulnerable. Uh, and so you really can get there. But don't be afraid to take the time and try to figure it out. I'm going to put some posts in the link to the podcast on how to reach orgasm. There's that wonderful readers story that was shared anonymously a couple of months ago, but how she finally had a breakthrough after 26 years of marriage. Don't wait 26 years of marriage. Please, you know, make this something that you do prioritize. But I think one of the reasons that it is so difficult for women is because we don't prioritize it. We have that attitude either that it's holier to not want sex or that I am being an imposition if I ask my husband to do these things. Neither of those things is true. God built you to have amazing sex, and He built you to to feel euphoria and to feel a lot less stress and to feel a lot more intimate with your husband after sex. And so please don't give up on something amazing that God made for you. There's a whole lot of posts this month that are a lot more detailed on how you can find your G-spot, how orgasms can even be multiple, and I encourage you to check those out. But as we'll be talking about next week, we really need to rethink how we see sex because too often we define sex in in terms of what men experience, and we don't talk enough about what women experience. And honestly, most guys will tell you sex is a whole lot better when you're having fun too. So if your husband says that he wants to take more time and pleasure you, let him. Don't think you're being selfish. Don't think it's awkward. Just let him. Because for the vast majority of guys, this is honestly what he wants to Does sex end once the baby comes? A lot of moms put their marriages and sex on the back burner for 18 years while they're raising kids. But I know that's not you. The whole reason you're here is because you care about your marriage. I know that you want life to be more than just to love, honor, and vacuuming, because I know that you want that passion. And so I invite you to join me tonight, February 21st at 830 Eastern on a free webinar with Jennifer Blossom from Blossoming Mom and Baby. We're going to be talking all about intimacy after you become a mom. Link is in the podcast description. I want to give you a little bit of a preview about what I'm going to be talking about next week because it's launching a whole series that I want to do in March about how we can start thinking about redefining sex. I think that we focus sex so much on this idea that it's about his arousal. His pleasure and his climax that we're missing some really important things. An interesting thing happened on my Facebook profile, not my page, my personal profile. Um, A couple of weeks ago, I shared a post about how so many women actually experience discomfort and pain during sex and that this isn't really considered because his needs are thought of the most. And I got into some interesting conversations in the comment section. And I just want to read to you one comment that I left. I think we need to stop talking about sex as about meeting needs and start talking about sex as being about intimacy and mutuality so that you can't see sex except as part of relationship. Sex has become too much for him, and it shouldn't be. It needs to be about us. It just does. The reason that women don't talk about pain and discomfort is because we're told that our husbands will be tempted to look at porn if we don't have sex. We're told that husbands need sex and that sex is a vital part of marriage. We're told that it's a sin to deprive. Why don't we talk just as loudly about how it's a sin to use someone when they're not enjoying it, or that it's selfish to cause someone pain for their own pleasure? Until we start talking about the latter part just as loudly as we do the former, we're not going to have healthy sex. I truly believe that the reason so many women have no sex drives is because of the way we're framing sex as being primarily about his needs and the way we're erasing her experience from the way we talk about it. We simply have to start having a totally different conversation than the one we're having now. Look, you all know that I'm all for healthy frequent sex. It's almost all I talk about, but I don't think we can get there until women believe my experience actually matters. And by the way, I'm not trying to say there's anything wrong with having sex one night and not really experiencing any pleasure, but doing it because you want to give him a gift. Nothing wrong with that at all. Sometimes you just really can't turn your brain off and sex just isn't going to work for you. And I get that. But when your whole sex life is that he is doing all the receiving and you're doing all the giving, that just isn't right. And that's what I've been talking about this month. I've been trying to help you guys have better sex and experience the pleasure that God wants you to have. But we need to stop talking about sex in terms of rights and needs and start talking about sex in terms of mutuality. I'm not trying to say that guys don't have needs. Okay, I'm just trying to say that the way that our conversation has gone about sex has often worked to devalue what women experience and that works directly against women even feeling like it's okay if we experience pleasure ladies, it is totally okay. And I want you to have all the best. And I hope that I can be part of that journey with you. But please, let's start having a totally different conversation about how sex is supposed to be wonderful, but bring us together. Because I don't think the problem is that women don't know that men need sex. I don't think we need people telling us men need sex. What I think we need is people telling us, ladies, you you were meant for sex too, you need sex too. Because when we get that message, I think that's when women's sex drives are gonna finally kick in and that's when we're gonna start experience sex the way that God really did intend. Peacemaker versus peacekeeper. They're not the same thing. One addresses conflicts and deals with them. One shoves conflicts under the rug to keep things on an even keel. God calls us to make peace and sometimes that's messy, even in marriage. That's one of the thoughts in my book, Nine Thoughts That Can Change Your Marriage. Don't settle for an okay marriage. Get a great one with my book, Nine Thoughts That Can Change Your Marriage. And welcome to our Millennial Marriage segment. I've got my daughter, Rebecca, here with me. Hello. And Rebecca is a millennial. You've got into that generation by one year, I think.
1: Yes, I'm a 95 kid. I think I'm either the last or like the second last year that was included, depending on who you're talking to.
0: Right, and, and one of the things, we, we talked a couple of weeks ago on Millennial Marriage um, about the problem with finding a good church and... And then last week on the blog, I had um, a post that actually you featured quite prominently in on four ways to build a strong marriage community. And there was a lot of um, responses to that. And people were just saying how hard it was to find community. And so I thought it might be worth revisiting that in this podcast. Usually we talk about like a an article that we've seen in the news, but I think this is actually a really important one, just given how many comments we got. And so let's delve in why Do millennials have a hard time finding community? Exactly, because it is an important
1: question. And honestly, I have to say, I think that when it comes to this main question of finding community and finding lasting, important friendships, we kind of become our own worst enemy in our generation. You know, like when you look at past generations, they just didn't have the time-wasting tendencies that we do now like our entire lives are based around you know Netflix and just watching YouTube and sitting at home on our computers doing nothing whereas in the past people went out doing things they go to classes they're part of clubs they you know join a knitting group for Pete's sake if you're into that and you make friends and you do life together whereas now we all kind of just tag each other in memes on Facebook but other than that we're kind of alone in our apartments.
0: Yeah I mean one of the one of the big indicators that I see Um, is I've been speaking at Family Life Canada marriage conferences. And we started, Keith and I started speaking, I guess, around 2006. And at that point, they were um, quite concerned because a lot of their conferences that used to bring in like six, 700 people were starting to bring in like 400. And they were thinking, wow, how can we get it back up to 600? Well, now those same conferences, you know, they're bringing in like 250 or 300. And it's not that we're doing anything differently. In fact, I think the conference has gotten a lot better. It's just that people are not coming out to things. And and I we find that in church groups too, like when you put on an event at church or whatever, like people just don't come out to stuff. Exactly.
1: And I think a lot of that is because with this whole entertainment culture that we really have grown up in more so than any other generation so far. We get stuck in this routine where we just do these things that don't really help us, and then we feel alone and not connected. And then there are these things like conferences, which we go to, but then if we do go to a conference and we don't actually know anyone there, and we don't have any friends to really dig, uh, delve deep into the stuff that we're talking about, it kind of feels a little bit like, well, that was nice, but didn't really impact yeah, me. Yeah, yeah. And,
0: and I'm not trying to say that like a conference is going to bring in community. It was just an example. No, totally. Of, it was just an example of how people just don't. Like, I don't think that we leave our homes in the same way. Exactly.
1: And I think the problem is because we don't leave our homes, then when we do leave our homes, it isn't as fun. Because a whole reason, like, going to a girls' conference with, like, seven of your really close, close friends could be a seriously amazing experience. But if you don't honestly have those close friendships where not only do you like each other, but you actually know each other and do life together, I think that can be harder to find.
0: Yeah, you know, I, I I was once talking to a couple... Um, and they were on like their fourth church in our small town, and they kept going to different churches. They tried a church for like eight months and then they would go to a different church and they always complained that the church never made them feel welcome and they um, you know they never felt like part of community and so they would go but and I understand that I mean I totally get it. I know that some churches are not friendly and there's a lot of churches where they are really cliquey and I totally understand that. But at the same time, I would look at this couple and, you know, they would go into church and they expected to all of a sudden be the center of everyone's attention. And it doesn't work that way. Like what I found is if I want to have community at church, I need to invest. Like I need to actually go out and serve and do stuff cuz that's the best way to meet people. It totally is. Exactly.
1: And like this 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 is kind of what we were talking about, this is the flip side of what we were talking about last time where millennials are often blamed for just wanting to go to be entertained and be taken care of, but a lot of the time I think that although we need to stop giving people the bad label of hey you're just lazy you just want to come and have everything handed to you yeah
0: but that couple I'm talking about they weren't I just want to say this they were like 50 so it's not it's not just the millennial generation keep going keep going (laughs) no but what I'm trying to say
1: is I think that we need to recognize as churches that if we want people to be in good community we need to do more than just provide the option to go to a small group you know because you have these millennials who are coming into a church and they feel lonely in their life. They don't have real good community. They don't really know anyone who's walking really well in faith who they can connect with as a couple or as an individual. And then they go to a church where it's very difficult to meet people and it kind of exacerbates the problem. So then we write a post on like how like four ways to great to create a great community for your marriage and they're like, "Well, that would be great if I could actually do that." Yeah. And, and so the question is, how do we actually help people do that?
0: Yeah, because I remember um, your dad and I, like when you guys were little, um, we tried the small group thing a couple times, and it never really worked super well. I think I think sometimes. You know, people in your small group, you don't always hit it off with. I'm but also so- going to
1: be honest. As the older kid who always had to babysit all the other younger kids in the small groups, I was always so happy and you guys stopped going to a small group.
0: Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you got stuck with that a lot. But, you know, another issue is your dad just had shift work. And so yeah. the idea of having to commit every Wednesday or something, it just didn't work for our lifestyle. And I think a lot of people are like that. Like, they can't make that regular type commitment just because of jobs. Well, and not only that, I would take it a little bit
1: further and say that right now, A lot of what people need is not necessarily what you're going to find in a small group. What people need is someone to do life with them, not talk about the sermon with them. Not Well, not only talk about the sermon with them, right? Because that's an important part if you're really good friends. You're going to talk about the important spiritual things. But small groups often create this false sense of intimacy with people because you don't oh. actually know what's going on in their real life. You don't actually spend time with each other. Your kids don't hang out after school almost every day. You don't go camping together. You don't go and do all your Christmas shopping with each other so that you can make sure to get your spouse what they really want. Like, you don't do the little things. And so all you talk about is, hey... Here's this really huge issue. Let's talk about depression in the church. But how can you really have those conversations if you don't actually know this person likes to... Like, this person's a good barbecuer. Like, those silly little questions.
0: Yeah, and actually that's a really good point because I think sometimes churches try to set up this sort of false intimacy and even false accountability that can Mm -hmm. actually be quite dangerous and even bordering on abusive. Like, I know some small groups in some churches where the small group, you're assigned a small group, and then you're told, these are your accountability partners, and... You know some small groups to divide them out into men and women in the very beginning and then the men are supposed to confess their sins from the week to the small group leader and the women and like that's just not healthy
1: well because then the accountability partner hasn't gained or earned the person's trust yet yes. right and that's the main thing like Connor and I have really really good community around us we don't have a like we're not the kind of people who will have 20 friends you mm-hmm. know we kind of have our core groups who we've stayed strong with for years and the, the reason that we've done that is because it's so important to heavily invest in those friendships where you know you can trust the person's judgment. You know that you can trust that they are able to call you out in a way that is going to be helpful if you are making a stupid decision. But also, they're the kind of people who you actually enjoy being around. Mm-hmm. And so those hard conversations are easier to have. Whereas if we were just thrown into... A small group setting or if I went out with Connor and said okay we're going to become community with this couple because we need community and so we're going to talk about this specific problem that we're having like day one that just isn't actually what real family looks like right you know when you start a friendship you don't start with the hard stuff you know you start with a board games night or you start with going out for coffee to get to know the person And I think that when we talk about community often, and we see this a lot with the wives too, in the Mm -hmm. comment section, we saw a lot of this where they said, I just want to have these friends so that my husband can really talk to someone. I'm like, your husband might not talk to the person for like three years into the friendship and that's okay. These (laughs) things need to happen organically. And I think that's just the main, the main conversation that we need to have with millennials is having that be a real priority is organic, great, trustworthy yeah. friendships. Okay,
0: so let, let's let give a couple, I, I have I have two main suggestions here on how this can happen more organically, okay? And I, by the way, I don't mean to be talking down small groups here, I'm just saying. <laughs> no, no, small groups can be great. I was in, like, I mean, this, the, the post talks about the small group
1: that I actually created yeah, with a bunch of those I think, friends. but I
0: think the big thing is that if you're gonna have that kind of community, it has to somehow grow organically. So the question is, how do you do that? And number one, one of the challenges, or one of the um Was it a challenge? I don't know. It was was a goal that your dad and I set for each other this year was that we were going to start having people over for dinner more often. You know, like every other week, we're going to invite people over for dinner and just get to know people. Um, And we did that a lot when you guys were little, actually. We we invited people over for dinner a lot. Um, But that's how you get to know people. And so if you're in a church and you feel like you don't know people invite someone over for dinner or over for lunch after church on Sunday, like stick some pulled pork with barbecue sauce in a crock pot before church. And by lunchtime, it's ready. Y'all you need to do is buy some Kaiser's. Seriously. It totally works. <laughs> it makes a great lunch. Kaisers, yeah. some green peppers, some lettuce. You're good to go. Um, and uh, and, and people really enjoy that, you know so so start inviting people over more, and then the number two thing I would just say is volunteer
1: exactly that's how i that's how Connor and I met many of our friends is through the volunteer. Organize, the, through the volunteer jobs that we've done with our church yeah
0: because the nice thing about volunteering is that often you meet people of different generations and that can be really useful too like you'll meet people that you need to be mentoring um like I remember when you and Connor did that Christmas play like you guys started in a Christmas play a couple of years ago and you know there were there were kids who played your children mm-hmm. and so you kind of you kind yeah. of were the mentors for them but then there were also some wonderful older adults who became your mentors so that's like that's a really healthy thing is just that intergenerational thing. So, you know, volunteer, and it's not like you're gonna hit it off with everybody, but when you have people who just see you frequently, it just becomes much easier to talk. <laughs> it
1: really does. And also, if you're doing things like volunteering, you're more likely to meet people who also have the same kinds of passions and interests and values as you yeah. do.
0: so, you know, it takes some effort, you gotta get out of the house, um, but it is really worth it if you want that community. <laughs> Most women think that if they're not raring to go, then they must not be in the mood. But what if I told you that libido for women doesn't tend to act like that? If we stop waiting for our bodies to tell us, I'm ready to go, and start learning to think differently about libido, and read our bodies differently, suddenly everything in the bedroom can fall into place. Check out my Boost Your Libido course to help warm you up. Find it under courses at tolovehonorandvacuum.com. Now's the time where I take your questions. We've been talking about sexual health this month and in this podcast and looking specifically about how women's bodies work and how we can make them work better. But you know, sometimes the sexual health issues actually belong to the guy. And so I want to redo um, an email that I just got from a new subscriber. She says, a few years ago, I told my husband to get testosterone shots. He got the test at a special clinic and sure enough, his testosterone was low. We've been together for over two decades. When we were dating, sex was not a problem for him. Many things happened, and the relationship continued to drain. 15 years ago, we got married. I thought things could be renewed, but I always got false hope. A sexless marriage, by definition, is 9-10 to times a year, and we barely did that. Well, a few months ago, I put my foot down about getting testosterone, and he agreed to it. I was already depressed and so sick of his, I don't need this testosterone thing. I gave him an ultimatum, get the testosterone shots, or this is over. As a woman who has never been seduced or pursued by her husband, I can tell you it is devastating. It kills your spirit. How do I forgive for years of neglect? The messed up thing is that now he loves the testosterone and he feels happy and sexual and is telling me how beautiful I am and my body is gorgeous. I pray every day to God to take away this clinical depression and to take away the anger. I want my marriage and I want my children to have a family. I want to be able to enjoy sex with my husband. I just don't feel in love and I don't feel sexual. Is it the depression or is it the antidepressants or is it that I need time and need to be patient? All right. First of all, I'm really sorry. This has been a long thing. You know, 15 years of marriage, 15 years of a sexless marriage. That's a long thing to live with, and I really do feel your pain, and I am so sorry. And now we've got all these convoluted problems which have just been built layer after layer after layer. And you know, I look at this and I think, huh, man, if he had just gotten the testosterone earlier, so much of this could have been relieved because you know. Sometimes our sexual problems simply have a biological basis, you know, we look at all these relationship things and we try to fix the relationship, we try to fix all these things, but sometimes you just need to go to a pelvic floor physiotherapist, sometimes you just need to get the testosterone shot sometimes it's just it really honestly is that easy and especially when testosterone is involved I've heard this from so many women we fought about this for years they say I always felt neglected and then he gets the shot and suddenly he's the person I always dreamed of and it's overnight and I wish we hadn't have lost those 10 years and that's what I'm reading when I I see this letter is I wish they hadn't have lost all of those years okay but they did lose those years and so what does she do now Let's deal with the big picture medical things first. So now she's the one with clinical depression to which his neglect of her has probably contributed for sure. And so she's wondering if that's why she has no libido and it very well could be. And so I'd suggest talking to your doctor. You might be able to switch to different antidepressants, which don't have the same um, libido killing propensities as the one that you are on now. So that is definitely worth looking, talking to your doctor, seeing if there can be a medical change, a medicine change there. But it does go deeper than that. So there's two issues here. One is that they do need to address the fact that she was neglected for years she's feeling really, really hurt about that. And she's having a difficult time forgiving him for that. And what I'm seeing here is that he only got the testosterone shot when she put down an ultimatum. And now that she he has the testosterone shot, he says he's happy, and he's pursuing her. But what I don't see, and perhaps she just didn't mentioned this, but what I don't see is any recognition of how much he hurt her. And so I think that it is perfectly good and right to sit down with him and say, this is what you did to me over the last few years. I feel very, very neglected and sad. And I just needed to acknowledge it. When you say that we need to say it in the right spirit, because this is the problem with anger and bitterness and hurt is that we can let it eat away at ourselves too much. The simple fact is there is nothing that your husband can do to make up for that 15 years of neglect. There's absolutely no. He cannot turn back the clock. He can't do anything differently. And I think we often feel, well, an apology doesn't isn't good enough, but that might be all that he can give you. And so this is where a good theology of forgiveness comes in. You know, God calls us to forgive, just as he does. And The reason that we forgive is so is so that we can then live a big life because when you are living with bitterness and anger, you can't live that big life because you're always living in the past and you're letting your past hold you down. I believe that in marriage, it is still important for the other person to hear the pain that they have caused. And I think it's crucial to acknowledge that pain. I think intimacy is very difficult to grow if someone does not acknowledge what they have done. And so having those conversations is key. (laughs) Another thing I love to say is that when we lose the ability to talk about the little things, we lose the ability to talk about the big things. Okay, and this is a very, very, very big thing. And it could be that if your marriage has deteriorated to the extent that you can't have those hard conversations, it might be worth. Working on just having small conversations for a while, and what I mean by that is just do stuff together so that you can just plain chat. You know, go for walks after dinner, pull out a board game and play a board game with the family. Do things together just to bring the tension level down because as you start chatting, as you start laughing, you do change the dynamic, and then you're able to talk about those big things again. So, it could be that you have to start with the little things first, but it is important that he understands the pain and that he acknowledges it. Then however, there's the next step, which is you need to let that bitterness and anger go. And that only comes from really getting your heart in the right place and understanding how much God loves you, how much you understand how much you love this man. I mean, think about this. You have been praying for this for 15 years. You have been praying for him to suddenly want you and to have sex more and to be pursued. And now he's doing it. (laughs) And of course, as he does it, you recognize even more what you lost out on. And so sometimes that can make the anger grow. But don't let that anger and that bitterness rob you of enjoying the one thing that you have wanted your entire marriage. So wrestle this out with God, journal if you have to, but realize that you can't build the intimacy in the marriage that you want, if you keep holding on to this bitterness, and there's nothing that he can do to make up for it. Now, can you find your libido again? Well, with a lot of women, libido really is so use it or lose it. And especially when you're suffering from depression, um, it, it needs to almost be an act of the will. I think a lot of women, as I've talked about in my Boost Your Libido course over and over again, we're waiting for that special lightning bulb to go off where suddenly we start wanting our husbands and arousal starts. And for most women, arousal does not come before you make love. Arousal kicks in after you decide to start. And once you start giving those positive messages to yourself, I talk about this a lot more in depth in boost your libido. I hope that course can help you and others. Um, but the big things that I would say in this case are sit down with him and talk to him about your hurt. Ask him to acknowledge what he has done. Um, but then if he honestly has, embrace this new life that you've been praying for because you finally have it. So don't let that bitterness rob you of what you have always dreamed of. podcast, I like to feature a couple of comments or emails that have come in. And this week, I had a number related to the posts I did on Monday and Tuesday about pelvic floor physiotherapy. And for those of you who do not know what this is, um, it's actually really important. Basically, it's a physiotherapist who works with your pelvic floor and your pelvic floor is like all of the muscles that hold in, you know, your bladder, your pelvis, like all of those areas. Um, And so it relates to sexual health. It's the muscles in your vagina. It's everything like that. And I know when I was first married, I suffered from vaginismus, which is pain during sex because your muscles clench up. And I was taken to see a gynecologist who thought that if I just got comfortable with my body, everything would be okay. And it was just such a terrible, terrible experience. And I wish now that I had known about pelvic floor physiotherapists. I don't even know if there was such a thing back then. But they're really amazing. And Sheila Zelmer was Zellmer um, is such a physiotherapist, and she wrote two amazing posts for me. And so I just want to, I, I want to make sure everybody knows this stuff. Like if I could shove this from the rooftops, then I would, because this is so important. And I want you to know it, even if you don't have have these issues because some of your friends might and then you can tell them where to get help so it's like for people who have yeah pain during sex for people who have bladder control issues anything like that we had um A number of really great comments on the post this week and on Facebook. A woman was even saying, you know, she's not married yet, but she's never been able to insert a tampon. Like, what should she do? And I would just say, please go get help now because your body matters whether you're married or not. Uh, But I wanted to share with you just two emails that came in. One, just to encourage us and one's got some great recommendations too. So one woman writes, I've been doing pelvic floor therapy for several weeks, and it's helping with several things. I have more bladder control. I no longer have the urge to urinate immediately. I no longer have what I call homing bladder. That's where I turn into my driveway. My bladder thinks it's time to go everybody out of my way. (laughs) And best of all, my husband can tell that my muscles are stronger. Wink, wink. This was definitely a win-win for me. I was to the point, I'm over 60, that something had to be done, whether it was surgery or buying stock in a pad protection company. My gynecologist recommended I try this therapy first. I wasn't even aware there was such a thing, and I'm so glad she did. It really works, but you have to commit to it, and I'll have to work on it forever, but it's getting to the point now where I do without even thinking about it so awesome and i just want to i just want to echo her and you know a lot of these bladder problems she's older and it is common when you're older but it's also really common right after you give birth um and not just that you can also feel like you're just too loose after childbirth like there's no sensation during sex and sex can also get a lot more painful after childbirth so for some people vaginismus is worse when you're first married for other people sex might have been fine and then after childbirth all of a sudden your muscles just don't work the same way and sex really hurts So, you know, so those are all issues that pelvic floor physiotherapists can help with. The second letter writer, it's not about a pelvic floor physiotherapist, but it's just another resource that can help you in this area. So she says, I've never really had big problems in this area. I used to leak a little when I sneezed after my daughter was born. Yeah, don't we all? Um, (laughs) But my husband and I have always had great sex. But I started a workout program over the last three months that focuses on pelvic floor health, both strengthening the muscles and learning to relax them. It's specifically geared towards women who have given birth, no matter how long it's been or who are about to give birth. Not only is the program great, but I've definitely seen improvement in myself. I don't leak anymore and my husband has noticed a difference during sex, specifically with my ability to use my pelvic floor muscles. That's two people who have mentioned that now. (laughs) So he likes the program too. And it's MamaStrong.com. Mama, M-O-M-M-A. So MamaStrong.com. I'll put the link in the podcast description and on the podcast post on the blog. Um, So do take a look at those things and If you have a problem of any kind like this, find a pelvic floor physiotherapist. You can often just Google it. I know in Canada, there's a central database of them. And I will put that link on the podcast post as well. But don't despair because sometimes we think when there's a problem with our body in this area that it's all in our heads or that we should be able to fix it. But those muscles are muscles just like any other. And if you have to work on them, that totally is okay. So please get help and don't suffer with this too long. Thanks for joining us for the To Love, Honor, and Vacuum podcast, where we're all about living life passionately, not as a crushing to-do list. If you enjoy this podcast, please give it a five-star rating on whatever platform you use, and do leave a review so that we can get more people listening in. Check out the podcast post on tolovehonorandvacuum.com as well, where I always have lots of extras waiting for you. And tune in next week, where I start to dismantle the whole way we talk about sex in the church. I am on a mission to help couples experience passion the way God intended, and I do hope you will join me in that journey.